John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 206.LV2733, certificate number 48966, change of gauge. You, uh, you're, you're fairly well-traveled. Eh. Wouldn't you say? I mean, you and your family like to go on vacations. Yes. Plus, you're a great, a great adventurer who's pioneered many routes across the Gobi. I did discover Victoria Falls in the 1890s. I mean, discovered. Obviously, we all know sure, sure, the local sure. tribes had called it Loudwater, sure, Majestic Water, or whatever. Known it for many centuries. But I was the one who was like Majestic Water. That name sucks. You know. You know who's cool? Queen Victoria. <laughs> she wears black. Uh-huh. Uh huh. She's not that into sex. As far as we know. She misses her husband. But so maybe she was into sex? I mean, if you think about the fact that one of the most prominent genital piercings is named after her husband. <laughs> and by prominent, I mean both like like uh, largely adopted and also fairly prominent. Prominent to the naked eye. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I, I do enjoy traveling. I'm not. I'm trying not to com- commit myself because what is this in aid of? Like, what are you, what am I about to get nailed down into? Well, I mean, you've seen you've seen other parts of the world. Oh, You're not I've, somebody. I've who's, seen things. You know, you, you've seen the sea beams glitter off the shoulder of Orion. <laughs> yeah, Tannhauser Gate, check. Mm-hmm. Got that on my got that on my bucket list. But when you were young, you lived in Korea. Then you've you've you're, you're fluent in Spanish, so you've traveled. Uh, you've traveled in Central America. Some, yeah. A little bit of South America, am I right? Yeah, but it's pretty much American middle class. It's not really adventure travel. Right. Like, we went to Costa Rica, but we didn't go to Honduras. Because you know why? Like, 900 people get murdered every year in Honduras. 900 people? I don't know. I'm going to... I'm going to, it's like the world's highest per capita murder rate. Is that right? And Costa Rica right across the border is, uh, is quite nice. Yeah. Why, why, why bother going over there? It's the same climate probably. Uh, yeah. The, um, the ceviche is probably equally good, but you're going to get murdered after. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I'm, I think I'm modestly well-traveled. I have friends that are always like, here's what we're going to do. The Trans-Siberian Railroad. Right. Um, introduce me to your friends. They seem more interesting than you. They are more interesting than me. Well, not on a podcast. Wait a minute, maybe. I'm your friends. When you're actually interesting, you don't have to 
try to look interesting at parties by saying, hey, you know what? Kazakhstan. Hey, you're absolutely right. <laughs> That's why I've stopped saying Kazakhstan at parties, except when I'm trying to uh, activate my Manchurian candidates. Is that the thing? Kazakhstan. Uh, why don't we pass the time with a nice game of Kazakhstan? <laughs> it's a solitaire variant played in Uzbekistan. Um, I think one of the interesting things is that you married fairly young. Yeah, she was 14. And so... At, oh, you in, mean I was young. In the style of the time. Uh, so you and your wife have been co-adventurers. You never went really through a phase where, except yes. when you were on a mission, you weren't like out on your own, lonely man. Sure. Two trip. years of Spain, I guess. Uh, yeah, and a childhood knocking around Seoul, right. Korea, trying not to get run over by motorcycles. But but you're right. But we've talked, to, we've talked on uh, the Omnibus about rail travel a couple of times and the, the, um, I mean, in, in my case, you know, my dramatic younger life, in your case, the choo-choo trains of Thomas, the tank engine. <laughs> right. Yeah. You did. Well, you did the, you did the tech, the MIT model railroad show. So you have probably done oh, the nerdiest true. train that's, show. You're right. Like Thomas, the tank engine is, is toxic masculinity compared to the <laughs> MIT tech railroad club. How do you feel about the romance of the rails? Do they, does it, does it call to you? Do you, do you feel the lure of, of train travel? I do. I love train travel, but maybe not so much Depression-era hobo freight riding. Sure, I understand. That seems, that seems like, what if camping, but worse? It's more rustic. It certainly is. There's no bar car. <laughs> I, can't, I, I feel like you're using this as a recommendation, and I'm saying exactly. It's more rustic. <laughs> but, uh, I prefer like the Hitchcockian... Uh, idea of a uh, railroad as a ticket to glamour and yeah, adventure and sure. who, who knows who you will meet in the, in the lounge car. And, uh, and maybe there's an assassin in the next compartment. That's right. The Orient Express exactly. is, the, is the, the peak of that. What I want is 12 people on the train from my past who all want to kill me. <laughs> what are the odds? Uh, have you ever taken a, a train across America? No. Uh, I feel like as a very little kid, I took an Amtrak train but it was probably from bellingham to everett <laughs> no, it wasn't sound it was, but it was probably something like i mean i've taken the i've taken the little commuter train here which is fun because it's right along the sound yeah but i feel like i maybe did salt lake seattle was that ever doable by amtrak in my lifetime salt lake to seattle maybe it's not um you know that would involve some switching around there's a there's a salt lake to san francisco train and there's a I mean, you you could do it. You just have was, to get off. Maybe along it the was way. Salt Lake to San Francisco. I don't know. I do have a memory of a exciting multi-state train trip, but it's yeah. you know the the cratering of airline ticket prices kind of ended it for me because if you're going right. to get somewhere, do you want to get there in an hour and a half or three days? Well, it depends. I mean, if if you're if you got nowhere nowhere to be <laughs> and no nobody's waiting for you at the other end, if you got people in the next car waiting to kill you, take all the time you have you, you you want. You don't want to let them down. I've you know I've been a proponent of reintroducing lighter than air travel. Yes, you want um, dirigibles and and um, and and blimps, balloons. Balloon travel. You know, when I was growing up, I think we talked about this on the show, uh, in Anchorage, there was a, like a really vital ballooning community. It it was kind of a, it was, um, an affectation of the, the, uh, nouveau riche at the time. To own your own hot air balloon? To own a hot air balloon. It really was. Like if you- Does it have your net worth on the- 
No, you had a you had a you had a cool rainbow. A lot of them are rainbow colored. But all through the 70s and 80s, on a on a calm day, summer and winter, the skies over Anchorage were filled with hot air balloons. I feel like hot air balloon iconography was kind of at its peak then. It's, yeah. it's Lisa Frank kind of a, a vibe of day glow colors. Yeah. I feel like as a kid, I was always coloring in hot air balloons in a, in a coloring book or something. Well, and in Salt Lake, you know, Salt Lake there against the mountains, it's kind of famous for... Uh, kiting and there's uh, hang, gliding, hang gliding for sure, but that but maybe hot air ballooning not so much. I think there's hot air ballooning maybe up in Park City or something. We do it here. Have you ever seen them kind of going up and down over Woodenville out east? Well, yeah, but they're but it's just uh, it's a shadow of its former self and and the hot air ballooning world. And I think in in Anchorage there was a definite like a law passed a moment in time where it went from. Sometimes you'd look up, there'd be 25 hot air balloons in the sky. And then one day there were none. Was there a cop in a hot air balloon, like, uh, beckoning to traffic? And I think it was... I, like an intersection? I think it's that's the thing about hot air balloons. You can't really Every, steer them. Everybody goes the exact same... <laughs> there's no collisions, right? Because everybody right. moves with the wind. Right. This has little or nothing to do with change of gauge. But I uh, right. last night at dinner, I uh, we were discussing the possibility of hot air ballooning. What? Sometime this summer. This came up... Just last night? Yes. Wow. Uh, Omnibus, once again. I mean, by the time anybody listens to this, it's already happened, but we're going to go to Montana this summer, uh, pandemic permitting. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more socially distant than being up in a hot air balloon. In a big sky. Right. It's right there in the name. You're in big sky country. The sky's big. Uh, And the kids were very afraid. The kids did not want to be in a precarious balloon. And I said, from what I hear... It's the opposite of stressful because you're moving with... Have you ever been in a hot air balloon? Mm. So you move with the wind, right? Mm. So there's no air movement. It's eerily calm, right? Mm-hmm. And is it scary? Does that make it less scary or more scary? The The thing that is scary to the, to the gentle soul is that in order to get the balloon up there, you have to hit this butane burner and it's extremely loud and... Like a very forceful burn of of gas, so it's like, and also you see this huge flame above your head. And if you're if you're in the, I'm just in the total peaceful quiet of the sky, and then this burner goes off. It's a real transition emotionally. What if you're into it for ASMR reasons? I mean, I'm super into it. That's one of the sounds of my childhood. You know, sitting around and listening to the hot air balloons. <laughs> calling, calling to each other like across the, like across the cicadas. bay. <laughs> uh, maybe that's why the eerie calm. Like they subject you to this awful eardrum cracking noise, and then they're like, they turn it off, yeah. and you're like, wow, wow it is quiet now that you turned off that giant burner, doofus. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, that's right. The enjoyment of a hot air balloon is is eighty percent Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> you, you you hope the balloon men. <laughs> we'll let you go. You you totally defend them in any argument later. You're like, they're great. They're amazing. Are there usually confrontations with your balloon men after you land? Like a farmer with a pitchfork? I've told you before to stay out of my field. Yeah, usually, you usually come down into some kind of tar pit. And, <laughs> really? Yeah, and half the, half the people are entombed. And you're like, hey, 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 buddy. This is balloon man Barry. I want you to 
Step back. <laughs> Step off. Step off. Balloon Man Barry is here. Why are we talking about balloons? Oh, uh, just because of the romance of <laughs> sure. balloons and the romance of lighter than air travel and the lighter than air travel as an alternative to rail travel, which is an alternative to air travel. I guess it would be an alternative to rail. The speeds would not rival the jet age, but um, you but could you could travel in this meditative style. In the sense of me wanting to be uh, a, a, a dirigible Empresario or a Zeppelin well, Empresario. Sure. Imagine the first well, of all. List the concrete steps you have taken to become a Zeppelin Empresario. I, I mentioned it on podcast. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't work for it, it's not a goal, John. It's a wish. I, uh, I, I'm still, I'm still gathering steam. I'm gathering investors. <laughs> you don't need steam. I. That's right. You don't you, need. You need, steam. He, you need it's helium. Not, not, not steam powered. Uh, although steampunk, you could be a steampunk Zeppelin Empresario. I really want. I have the mustache, or could. No, I, I think uh, the the Orient Expressification of the dirigible gondola is East Asia Express. I mean, you can, you cannot you cannot put any limit on the amount of of lux. Sure. I mean, think it, it would put the SS United States to shame. You just would expect fountains and gold, oh, gold fittings, chocolate and- fountains, and then you could have everyone who ever wanted you dead. And no, you couldn't even get off at the station. They're all on there. There's no escape. Is there an Agatha Christie Zeppelin murder? I think maybe there's not. No. What a missed opportunity. Well, if you don't work toward it, Ken, it's just a wish. <laughs> I guess that's true. If I'm not trying to bring Agatha Christie back from the dead with some kind of revival electrical powers. No, I'm saying you're forcing the, her to write a book set on a Zeppelin. You're the author. You could oh, stop see. writing books about paper clips and start, you know, be novelizing. The be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> uh, when you lived in Spain, surely you traveled by rail. Yes. High speed rail in Europe is such a joy. And not just in Spain. I've done, you know, I've traveled through central and Western Europe through, uh, it's the way to go. Largely on high speed rail or on uh, on your no, regular rail. Regular rail in Spain and France. I've done some high speed rail, or sorry, regular rail in Central Europe. High speed rail through Spain and France and Korea in the past and Japan. It's great. Yeah, high speed rail is great, and it's fortunate for you that you took high speed rail between Spain and France because uh, the. Alternative, taking regular trains from Spain to France, is pretty complicated. Well, I have a story here. Oh, let's hear it. So you can travel high-speed rail easily within France and within Spain. But at the time we were traveling between Paris and Barcelona um, by train, I don't know if it was an option. Can you do do high-speed rail today? Now you can. I don't know if it was an option when we did it. And so I looked up an itinerary between Paris and Barcelona and bought a ticket to Montpellier, which I guess when I printed it out, I thought maybe Montpellier was the name of a some kind of Catalan train station. Right. And it turns out what I had bought was the first leg of my journey to Barcelona. But I was, you know, what, 100 miles north of the French border because, as you say, the gauge changes, right, between France and the railroad gauge. So uh, you have to get off a train – and get on a, a different train that will be on a different rail system that will actually get you to Barcelona. Yes. So uh, I, I got to enjoy a cafe in Pont Montpellier for three hours waiting for my differently sized train to finish my journey. The legend is that uh, when rails, you know, when the rail systems in Europe were being constructed, it was not that 
long after France had invaded Spain for the last time, hopefully. For the last time yet. Um, and so as the, as the French and Spanish were building rail networks, the Spanish intentionally made the gauge of their track uh, a wider gauge than the French lines in order to inhibit the French, the French ability to just run trains straight, you know, as part of an invasion scheme. I like how there's some kind of Mediterranean macho to making it a little wider too. Like we, we have a wide stance. That's right. We have a wide stance here in Spain. But what that has meant is from, from the very beginning of rail travel in Europe, the transition uh, between France and Spain, I mean, there's, there's always been rail traffic between the two and commerce traveling between the two. And it is always a problem at the border until the advent of high-speed rail where somebody, there was – Somebody laid new track or – Yeah, it was a – I mean, since the or system Or you're just going was, so fast, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you, just, you just like <laughs> the wheels skip go, across. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, high-speed rail is a, is a, is a more contemporary uh, evolution. And when high-speed rail was being designed, it couldn't just – you had to build a new system. Hey you guys, couldn't just put them on. Hey guys, track. this time let's make sure it doesn't suck. Right. So they so they standardized a gauge, and now you can travel uh, via Renfe um, and TGV, uh, and it kind of have an uninterrupted travel. And in fact, you know the high speed rail in Spain that uh, I kind of watched that being built over the years because I traveled to Spain quite a bit, and it was a that was a major major infrastructural uh, project that uh, took a really long time just to build high-speed rail from Madrid to Barcelona, watching it go in and, and all of the, you know, it was kind of uh, for a while there, it seemed like the the Basque separatists were always planting bombs under it or, or it threatening to. The, uh, the Catalonian uh, separatists also kind of threatening the high-speed rail. It's one of the scariest things about high-speed rail. Is the Basques might blow it up? Is the Basques might like, blow so it up. So even if you're going like Tokyo to Hokkaido, you're like, I hope there's no Basques. That's, that's why we don't have it here in, <laughs> in, in, in America, because the threat of the Basques is They might come over from Idaho and, uh, and push down one of those crazy plungers like the, like the explosive happy Muppet. <laughs> or, or, or Snidely Whiplash. Exactly, right? Snidely my, Whiplash. Might tie a, a maiden to the track. I'm sure. Let, let's make somebody feel happy. I'm going to admit right now, I cannot remember the name of the Muppet that pushes down on the plunger and blows stuff up. So if you if you know that, you should feel very smug Who right now. Who is it? It's not... It's not um... It's not another Muppet that's that is also the Plunger Muppet, or is there a specific? It's plunger kind of Muppet? his main gag is that he. I think it's Elmo, actually. Elmo. Yeah, when I was a, uh, for I worked for a few months in like La Mancha, kind of in the middle of nowhere, when I was a Mormon missionary in Spain, and that was kind of the one place where you Were could you the go. Man of- I was the man. Yeah, okay. of, I was El Hombre de La Mancha, mm-hmm. and that was kind of the one place. You know, missionaries do not live a Lux Zeppelin chocolate fountain lifestyle. Sadly, so we were always traveling in steerage. We were in you know, shipped in crates. And th- that was the one uh, trip where you were allowed to take the Ave, the high-speed, uh, what were the high-speed Renfe right. train. And it felt very fancy after uh, after living in squalor for two years. <laughs> it's, it's not that fancy, by the way, by the standards of, you don't get like the fun little bentos you get on Japanese bullet trains. Those fast trains, did you find looking out the window difficult sometimes? It, it was, was it moving fast enough that it made you dizzy or sick to your stomach? 
Uh, no, I don't get sick on trains. I can even sit backwards. I'm a superhero, basically. Yeah. But it does it does feel very space age. You're like, how am I going this speed at ground level? Because, you know, stuff in the distance will be moving at a nice normal speed. And then something will happen close enough to make you realize you're going 200 miles an hour. Yeah. And you'll be like, whoa! The high-speed rail actually uses uh, something approximating standard gauge. And standard gauge even is a... Um, I won't. I won't say misnomer, but but there are there's standard gauge and then there's standard gauge. You're gonna have to explain this all to me from the ground up. Gauge is the width of train tracks, the, the yeah. distance between the two rails. Well, there the, there are issues beyond just the 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 distance between the tracks, and and one of the primary ones is um, it's a standard called loading gauge, and loading gauge is the way of measuring. Not just the the distance between the tracks, but how much um, how much weight the tracks can bear, mm. how uh, how wide a diameter the actual train cars can be in order to make it under bridges and through tunnels. I see. So, so you can have standard gauge trains where the where the tracks look exactly the same, but a train from one country could not possibly make it through. Just the infrastructure of another country. Not to mention that some trains, um, particularly if you're talking about electrical or electrified rail, uh, all the differences sure. in uh, in uh, electrical systems, the differences between couplers and uh, and brake systems, pneumatic brakes. Let me ask you probably the stupidest question you're going to hear. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You ready for the stupid question? Yeah, let me hear it. What is the name of the Muppet? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what can a, can a train car adjust? Are they are any of them adjustable so that their wheels can be moved to go on on different gauge tracks, or is a car of a gauge and that's all you get? This is not a dumb question. Oh. This is a question that has been almost since the advent of rail. A question that has uh, kind of needed a solution because from the very beginning uh, there was not a standardization of what uh, what train gauges you know, they're, they're, from, from the outset there I feel was like from competition. Outset, I feel like from the outset they should have picked a number. They should have, um, but the original train, so it's, the, England was the first place to really build a train network. But like, um, like everything sort of powered by capitalism, it was also powered by competition. And most of the initial trains that went in were private enterprises yeah. and they were, they went from one place to another. They trains didn't start out being built as networks. They were built as a line from hither to thither. So you got VHS and beta, right? Every time you go to a different city, it's a different company and they've internally decided their own gauge. Here's a, here's an idea. Why don't we build a train? Well, how far apart should the tracks be? Well, let's put them this far apart. And it'll just be based on their internal considerations, not not from, like what would be a good nationwide standard. Initially, no. For, right. You know, it's like from my elbow to my ankle seems reasonable. And <laughs> That's some guy pacing it off. <laughs> and the reason, you know, and and, and the uh, a narrower gauge enables you to do, uh, it, it, it enables you to have a lot more flexibility in the sense that a narrower gauge, what, a, what does that mean? A smaller distance between the tracks, so tighter corners, tighter or? corners. It's probably cheaper to build too. You cheaper have, to build. You have to the the bed, the gravel bed, all the infrastructure that goes into laying track. You, it's less work. It's, in, it's less uh, square acreage in every respect. Right, the tunnels that you have to bore, yeah. 
bridges over the tracks. Um, all of it is much easier the smaller the train. So why not just make it small? The problem is smaller train does not have the loading capacity. Mm. A smaller train can't go as fast. Um, smaller trains just don't. Um, they're they're not as practical if you're if you're going from London to Brighton. They look kind of goofy. Yeah, they're it looks goofy like one looking. of those backyard train sets where like Walt Disney is sitting on the on the roof of the engine because it's it's a weird mini train. Sure, why not? You know, why not build a funicular if you're going to build a little <laughs> narrow gauge? Nothing. Would it be, is it still a funicular if it if it's if it's horizontal? Well, the thing is, the is tracks it, are horizontal, but the cars are all tilted. No, that's not fun. That's that's just an icular. <laughs> One of the first big, you know, net, train networks was the Great Northern Railway in the UK. Yeah. And that was designed by a man uh, who's, I think, widely regarded as one of the greatest engineers of all time. And in fact, one of the greatest Britons of all time, a man named Isambard Kingdom is it, Brunel. Oh, right. I.K. Brunel. Yeah. Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Are we pulling down his statues for anything? Did he also did he also run a slave ship or Is, anything? Isambard got into the civil engineering game after the whole slave ship era. Yay. Uh, and in fact, he... He was still extremely racist. However... <laughs> I do not, in my, in my limited research in, uh, of Isambard in terms of trying to figure out his contribution to rail gauges, I did not find any reason to cancel him. And I'm not sure whether or not Omnibus is really the engine of cancellation for, ba- for baddies. <laughs> For bad engineers of the 19th century, I feel like we're talking to futurelings who who don't even see color. Um, They've already canceled us for six things we said. Well, on this show, the, because because futurelings are seeing in infrared, so there's they they have a whole different picture of 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 uh, what human beings look like. W- were there a ton of people named Isambard back then? Doesn't, uh, doesn't Saruman live in Isambard? <laughs> Isambard was named after his dad. Uh, whose first name was Mark. So, uh, <laughs> so Mark got off easy. Honey, should we name him Mark or Isambard? But Isambard, I think, I think he, I think his father was, um, was born in France and, you know, Isambard's a family name. <laughs> if you go back far enough, everybody's got a name like, uh, de Tocqueville in their, in their history. I'm sure he, I'm sure you, you, what, what's the, what's the earliest person in your lineage that you can put a name to oh like right now without having to look it up well yeah but you've have you looked into yeah i think i've got genealogical lines going back to medieval england yeah right Um, but you don't know anybody's name because some of them are great yeah uh, barzilla is a name that keeps popping up in my family barzilla barzilla yeah Yeah. is barzilla gonna it's like a Welsh monster that takes out Tokyo. <laughs> there goes Tokyo. Go, go, Barzilla. Back to Isambard. Yeah. So, um, so Isambard, well, he was raised, his father was an engineer, and he sat at his father's right hand as, uh, as Mark Brunel built the first tunnel under the Thames, the first rail Ooh. tunnel, the first... Um, like this this is the dawn of the age of of massive engineering projects and mark brunel uh was you know was a, was a, a, an engineer of the first rank so much so that although he was uh, clearly bad at money he was sent to debtor's prison at one point 
and um, and the British government, because debtor's prison was you know very fashionable at the time, he had no way to repay the five thousand pounds he owed, and uh, the British government showed no sign of releasing him from debtor's prison until he figured it out, and so he threatened them. Uh, he threatened them by saying that he was going to go work for the czar building rail. You can always scare people with Russians. <laughs> and the and the British government was like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. we don't want you to go work for the czar. We'll, we'll pay your debts. And uh, and they somehow ponied up 5,000 pounds to get him out of jail. But at what point did Mark Brunel become the quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars? Was that later? Uh, that's a little bit of trans transubstantiation <laughs> where he became the body and the blood of he later uh, he, he was later reincarnated. Okay, uh, but, so, so Isambard, as his son, kind of uh, was raised in these big engineering projects. In fact, he, as a young man, almost was killed in a flooding of the of the Trans Thames Rail Tunnel. Don't tell your mother. But he uh, Isambard was instrumental in you know he was he built the first steel hulled propeller driven ship. Um, but also was the chief engineer of the Great Western Railway. And in his big plot for the world, uh, he his gauge for the Great Western Railway was seven foot across. And if you think about the standard gauge is four foot, eight and a half inches. Is that, is that true to this day? Yeah. Like a lot of American railroads are still four foot eight? Four foot eight is, is if you could say there was a global standard, which there isn't anywhere, mm-hmm. but, but Four foot eight is a widely adopted, what's known as standard gauge. It's what the it's what the Renfro and TGV high speed rail in Europe use. Because you want to be able to tie a woman to the tracks, right? Four so, foot eight, and, and four foot seven would be a very short woman indeed. You it's could like you could tie Linda Hunt to the, the thing tracks. is you can tie her to one track. <laughs> you can tie her to one track. It's just as fatal. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than your friend. Uh, and at the time, four foot eight was considered narrow gauge rail. And there was uh, there his attempt to standardize rail gauge at seven feet was kind of unrealistic. He was building a major rail line that was his his idea was that it would you know go between major cities. Bigger is better. Is that bigger the idea? is better. Hmm. Um, there were a lot of other, I mean, dozens of other rail companies in the UK that were using gauges that they had just made up. A lot of them really small. The smallest gauge of rail that is practical or even, I guess, like useful is only 15 inches. Um, <laughs> 15 inches? Tiny, it's like an ice skate. Or it's, <laughs> it's, you know, uh, little rail cars that you see in in mines. Yeah. Um, the Guinness Brewery actually had a rail line within the brewery that was very narrow and had locomotives and everything. It's, little, it's little, whatever the Oompa Loompas of, of beer are. Yeah, little cute little rail lines. And then uh, the leprechauns, l- probably. That's what the Oompa Loompas of Guinness beer are. The little leprechauns of Guinness. That, that make Guinness. And then the Great Northern Railway, this giant, I mean... Um, I feel like could, width is not what you... I mean, I don't want to... I'm not trying to size shame anyone. I know girth is important, but I feel like if you're trying to wow people with the size of your... The prominence of your railroad... You want it to be taller? 
<laughs> yes. How tall is the engine? <laughs> this engine is 38 feet tall. It's like the smokestacks are like a wedding cake. But you can imagine the stability of a That's train true. with a seven-foot wheel. Is this a time when people are maybe worried about trains, so the width of the track conveys a lot of uh, safety? No, I think he's imagining, uh, he's probably just imagining like load and also the comfort of if you've ever traveled oh, sure. on a transcontinental like a train, jet. Yeah. yeah, you're you you're, uh, you can't you can hardly put a, a bed wide enough for a human person inside an Amtrak. But if it was seven feet wide, holy cow! You could because you know then the the train the the um, the compartment can sit up above it and be fifteen feet wide. Is that true? The the compartments can be much wider than the gauge of the wheels, depending on the tunnels and stuff. Yeah, yeah. depending on the other gauge that we. Uh, that we were just discussing, right? Um, or the other gauges, the loading gauges of the train. If you look at a, if you look at a, uh, a British underground train, you know, a tube in those locations where the tube comes out of the ground and in its in its course of becoming kind of a local railway that goes out to the suburbs. Yeah, um, happens in West London a lot. You can see that the that the loading gauge of the train is so such a, a tight mirroring of right. the uh, of the tunnel right there's like there's three inches of of um of if, tolerance if you go in whatever those um whatever the oldest lines are where you can really see that the that the car every car is a cylinder yeah and if you stand too close to the door you had better not be tall because and you realize when it goes in the tunnel it's because it's going through a, <laughs> it's it's like a play-doh extruding thing it's going into a <laughs> hole exactly the size of that cylinder right Right, and that makes it very hard for the London Underground. I mean, there are multiple different loading gauges within the London Underground. There are cars in certain sections of the Underground that can't go into other sections, yeah. and all of that is routed. And there are all kinds of sort of measurement measurement gauges, like to to, to ensure that that a train isn't misrouted. Because if you did, you know, if you were the guy standing by the door and you go into the wrong tunnel, Kawak. you just lost the top of your head. Crazily, this is also true of the subways of Manhattan. Huh. The uh, the trains from the old BMT, the the Brooklyn Manhattan Transit, and the trains of the Interborough Rapid Transit, the IRT, are not. They cannot mutually interchange, um, inter because of the because of the um, the gauge of the the tunnels and all this other systems. It's like two two species that can't interbreed. And you don't think of that when you're in Manhattan. When you're in London, you just get on a train and and off you go. Well, in subways generally, the trains are going back and forth. You know, you would you wouldn't expect one of these trains from the the Metropolitan Line to suddenly be able to switch to the Piccadilly Line. It's 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 a non-issue. But if you're or I guess if you're running the whole system and ordering the trains, it's got to be a nightmare today that you've got all these historical relics. Well, and I think you just keep uh, you keep the two systems discreet. Yeah. Now, John, we've recommended native products, including deodorant, on the show before. That's right. Native deodorant is the is the product that uses like natural ingredients like coconut oil and shea butter and tapioca instead of uh, gnarly chemicals and aluminium and other things you wouldn't want on your body. Stuff you might find in the uh, ingredients of the antiperspirant in your bathroom right now. Aluminum, parabens, sulfates. Whatever those are. You can do without all that stuff. Well, and native is vegan and never tested on animals, whereas those things are all injected into your, into like cat eyes and stuff. Uh, 
I want a vegan deodorant because if I if I want if I take a big bite of it, mm. I don't. I want to make sure there's no <laughs> there's no there's not not a big chunk of ham in it. Sure. Well, or or some kind of like uh, radioactive ham, the worst of all. But listen, how appetizing! Like I'm kind of tempted to take a bite out of native deodorant. Now I'm not mm. saying you should, mm-hmm. but they smell so great. You're going to have to tell yourself not to. In honor of the Great American Road Trip, there are these new summer seasonal native scents in their deodorants and other products now, including Coastal Oak and Amber to celebrate California, Sweet Peach and Nectar, inspired by road trips through the South. That's nice. Cactus Flower and Poppy through the Southwest, Apple and Honeysuckle through the Northeast. Now, the Northwest is not yet represented. What would be the smell of a mm. of a Northwestern deodorant? Pine and clams? Yeah, gooey duck and paper mill? <laughs> I, could, I guess I know why they left it out. Well, these are, in addition to the normal flavors or normal scents, like coconut and vanilla, which I think would also taste delicious, although we are not encouraging you Again, to eat do native deodorant. Do not eat the deodorant. We're just expressing how tempted you will be. Lavender and rose, cucumber and mint. That's the one I got. Citrus and Herbal smell. Uh, I love the lavender and rose. Citrus and mint, cucumber and mint smelled, smelled so fresh. I'm a big fan. So for a limited time, uh, you have the option now as an Omnibus listener of getting 20% off your first order by, uh, by using the Omnibus code at nativedeo.com slash Omnibus. So go to nativedeo.com slash Omnibus. And use promo code OMNIBUS on your first order. You will get 20% off. Perfect for a late summer, early autumn road trip across America where you can see everything uh, from the from the inside of your lavender-smelling car. When or- the pandemic ends and you could finally go outside again, look, do you want to, be, do you want to smell like cactus flowers and poppies or don't you? That's do, the question you have to ask. Do you want to smell like the inside of your house for the last five months? In answer to your question... Uh, earlier about whether or not there are there are trains with uh, with multiple gauges capable of multiple yes, gauges. Yes, this speaks to my soul. Can I phys- can I become a different kind of person, or am I locked into my gauge forever? There are a lot of different ways to accomplish this, and 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 many of them were pioneered during what were called the gauge wars in the UK in the mid eighteen hundreds. Partly in response to this Great Western Railway um, seven foot gauge. There was a recognition as the as the train network expanded to to include more and more of the UK. At at a certain point, it was clear to everybody we can't have fifteen different gauges. We can't be like the Germans and have forty two different governments. We have to have some sort of standard. But there was a lot of it was VHS VHS and Beta. A lot. There was a lot of impetus on the part of any one particular company to have their gauge become the standard because it's extremely expensive to to you know migrate your rolling stock to a new. It's got to be the way. worst migration ever. You're, you're essentially, all of your infrastructure is now wrong, wrong, and every inch of it has to change by the exact same amount. So, tons of different ways of solving this problem were devised, and one of them is to have sort of multiple gauge tracks, all you need is one track, let's say on the left, that's going to be the, your, your left track. And then to the right, depending on how wide the various gauges are, you could have two or three tracks over there and just each one kind of representing a wider gauge that becomes 
a switching issue, right? right. As, a, as trains enter your system, you've got to have a pretty complicated way of, of, um, of connecting to other rail. Uh, there were the, the, the idea of having the, the, the bogey or the truck, which is where the, you know, that's the kind of system of wheels that sit underneath a car. I see. It's like the, the chassis of a, of a train car. Yeah. And those are, those are separate from the car mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Uh, the idea that you would roll a train up and pull the old bogies off and put new bogies on in order to have the bogies represent the new gauge was a system and is and continues to be a system. That seems awful. Like the the stuff stays loaded, the the freight car or whatever stays loaded, but you have to switch out the the thing it's sitting on, right? And while I, it's on track, I've been I, I've gone through this process. Um, there, uh, the 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 way that the, they do it between France and Spain is actually they have bogies that can change gauge. So they they bring the train in. You're you're on the train. They bring it into a like a a shop, and there's a machine that they unlock the bogies. They unlock the axles from from themselves. The machine pushes the wheels out to to the Iberian gauge. They're not swapping in a new bogey. They are just widening. They're just widening the bogey as it is, and then they lock it down. But I have a very distinct memory of traveling in Belgium in the eighties and having bogies actually swapped out. I'm not sure if that's a, if that's a false memory or well, not. Well, you know what they say? If you have a distinct memory of traveling through Belgium in the eighties, you weren't actually there. Right. It's actually, it was a UFO or <laughs> right. a UFO probing it's a, encounter. It's an implanted memory. <laughs> we'll make him think, we'll make him think Belgian railroads are super weird. But there are lots of instances in the world where you, 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 you know, the, the, um, the train is brought in, the bogies are lowered out in a kind of, uh, you know, into a bay and moved aside and new smaller or larger gauge bogies are brought in and put up. Is something holding the, 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 car, the car itself yeah, from the, the side? It's wedged in or yeah, something? Yeah, the car is, is, you know, held in a clamped. kind of crane or clamped huh. there. And in some places you can, uh, you can make a transition. You can basically switch a train without anyone getting off or any freight moving, switch it to a completely new gauge, and off it goes in a matter of an hour. Yeah, when we were in Montpellier, I wonder if we just got back on the same train that had been re-gauged or if, if we just got onto a, a different train on a different line. Probably I, a different train yeah. on a different line. If they, if they make you get off, it's much easier to just put you on a different train. I assume that's what happened. Transferring, um, like goods and people from one train to another it's a lot easier to do with people the people will get up and walk it's uh, super hard to do with the coal or whatever will not (laughs) right and also you know any kind of any kind of freight except cows they can walk cows can walk but you know is that what you you really want to you want to get a shepherd boy out there to move (laughs) cows from one train to the next this idea of of uh, of transshipment, which is you know taking everything out of one car and moving it to another, really expensive. It also increases your rate of breakage by you know some nth power. And it was this problem, and it started as a gauge problem and a transshipment problem. Was the was kind of the birth of the idea of containerized freight. 
Containerized freight didn't really become an international standard until uh, until the 50s and later. It's been an ongoing process. Um, but the idea occurred to people in the 1850s just as a way of like, well, what if we just made what if we just made the box the the thing and we moved the box from one set of bogies to another? It's a that's a a a more substantially difficult problem in 1850. Yeah, I mean, you've you got to lift off the box, right? And back then, really, that's not an option. So, who won the gauge wars? Were there also? Why isn't this episode called the Gauge Wars? That seems pretty good. Well, the Gauge Wars is a pretty good episode title, but um, for people who have made it this far, this you guys know <laughs> that's the secret title of, of this entry. The Gauge Wars were kind of you know a, a UK competition phenomenon as it expanded out to uh to sort of a the the idea of global train networks connecting with one another it did continue to be kind of a war um like a soft war but one where a, a nation has in the development of its rail system a nation has a lot more uh, initially interest in having the 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 gauge of rails within its own country be be compatible right yeah. because most of the goods you're initially uh, shipping with rail are uh, international especially at this intra intranational yeah. sorry especially at the time these systems were being created i mean right today if you were building one from the ground up you would think about travel or you know yeah. uh, uh, trade with your neighbors right now what you want to do is get as many television sets as you can from shanghai to wherever you are but at the time generally what you're doing is bringing coal down you're you're shipping trees around you're you're taking stuff from the plant to the turnips to the neighboring town. in the case of britain a lot of turnips. turnips a lot of turnips in ukraine it was all um it was borscht huge huge <laughs> are they tankered cars they're tanker cars borscht <laughs> Cabbages. All the hobos would uh, would sit on top of the car and just dip in with a ladle. Every hobo would have a ladle coming out of his pocket or her pocket. But now it is a it has become a global issue because rail travel is a is global, and a lot of the a lot of the solution to containerization particularly between European countries and countries in Asia is like, well, why don't we put the train on a boat and we'll take the boats to, you know, well, it'll be a ferry, a train ferry that goes from Finland to Russia. But, oh, wait a minute. The gauge of track is different in Russia too. So what we have to do is take the train onto the ferry, but also change the train, change the train. Right. There are other ways of, having trains that I didn't mention uh, of, of switching gauges, including in various places around the world where they will have a separate train flat car with the gauge, the, the narrower gauge, and they'll actually ride the other train up on the, 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 Differently gauged flat car. I guess it probably only works if you're going to a wider one, right? Uh, right, or or going to a no. You can go to a narrower one huh. because your your old your old bogies just kind of straddle this. Oh, new, it hangs over the edge. Yeah, this new like much narrower car. This is a problem in the in Hokkaido, where as they were building the super fast rail, they had um, they had 
it wasn't a question of train um, gauge like width of track or width width of bogey as much as it was the speed tolerances because really hot fast trains could go through these tunnels in a Hokkaido at 200 miles an hour, but they had to share the tunnels with freight trains that were only rated at 100 miles an hour. It's like a, it's like a routing problem too. And so what they did, what they're working on right now is a system and it's not even built yet is a system called train on train where they're putting, I know it is pretty hot train on train action where they're putting freight trains on these higher speed, uh, like, Train carrying trains, so the freight train gets a momentary turbo boost yeah. through the tunnel. So the train can, the freight trains can go can hot rod through the tunnels just to keep the system moving faster. That's their solution, rather than than to to go through the what would be an incredible process of turning freight trains into high speed rail, all, uh, almost unfathomable investment. It is amazing that you can take these high speed trains between the Japanese islands because those are long tunnels but uh some of the longest right? i'm pretty yeah i think in the world and i think at this point uh, i don't think you can take the high-speed rail the bullet train all the way to Sapporo. if i remember what when we did and i think this is still true they're they're building it but you have to get off the shinkansen at hakodate which is like the little city at the southernmost point of hokkaido and then switch to local regular speed rail that actually gets you into the city <laughs> One of the one of the countries that has the sort of the worst intra gauge problems is uh, the great state, the great nation of Australia. Um, as Australia was railifying, the different states of Australia uh, were kind of deciding what gauge to build their build their rails, and this was happening in that era of the the um, the gauge wars in the UK. This is going to be hilarious if every state winds up with its own gauge since, you know, those Australian states have like, what, 70 people tops? Yeah, well, and it was it was New, New South Wales that really pulled a switcheroo on everybody because New South Wales, in the process of kind of deciding what standard gauge was going to be in Australia, New South Wales said, we're going to go with the Irish gauge, five foot, three inch rail gauge. And uh, and that's that's going to be our standard. More like New South Ireland. And so the the states around them, so, uh, South Australia, Victoria, chose five foot three, and then New South Wales reneged on the deal <laughs> and switched themselves over to standard gauge. But by that point, South Australia and Victoria were pot committed to five foot three, and so went ahead with it, <laughs> and then. Queensland and Western Australia, which could not be further apart, by the way, through their, you know, through just their caution to the wind and both use three foot six inch gauge, which is also the gauge of rail in New Zealand. That seems like a little toy train. That's very, it's well, you know, I mean, Western Australia, it's not like they have long distances to cover. Why not have a little, (laughs) little three, three foot six inch gauge choo-choos. Uh, so Australia to this day has a lot of gauge intranational gauge issues and a lot of kind of technology technological fixes to get to get goods and services and and passenger trains moving uh, from place to place. But in the U.S., that is not true. We we standardized our freight rail earlier than that. Well, in the U.S., there were a lot of narrow gauge railways that were mostly specific to mining sure, mines. 
and and mountain trains, pri- privately owned trains that 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 served you know Gunnison, Colorado, or um, various places. And as time went on, uh, as those train systems were integrated into the larger network, yeah, the, we we standardized um, most rail in the U.S. There still are narrow gauge railways here, but they don't connect. Yeah. They're, you know, dinner trains and, and sort of tourist trains. Not very many mining rail railways left in the U.S. Um, compared to 100 years ago. So we do, we do use, you know, standard gauge. And, and another problem is that railroads were invented or, or first popularized in the U.K., which of course used imperial measurement. Um, I was going to ask, but but now rail seven is, foot foot seven foot two or whatever is pretty arbitrary if you're in using centimeters. And the and the sort of the millimeter gauge of rail railroads that are used globally, um, it's a, it's very complicated to to make an exact sort of uh, it, it turns out analog. to be it turns out to be thirty two point. Six, eight, nine centimeters or something? Yeah, like um, like the main line in Spain, main, main line railway, which, isn't, which is the wider gauge, the Iberian gauge, is 1,668 millimeters, which translates to 5 foot 5 and 21 30 seconds. <laughs> I was wondering how far you'd have to drill down to actually get the tolerances right on... On train wheels, I mean, apparently you have to be within a thirty-second of an inch, or uh, that sucker is not going to roll. Well, you don't. It's it's funny because a lot of these gauges can work with one another. How much give? Like Finland uses fifteen hundred and twenty-four millimeter gauge railway, which is five feet. Russia uses fifteen hundred and twenty millimeters, four millimeters, four millimeters smaller, which translates to four foot eleven inches. And twenty two thirty seconds. Half it's half a centimeter. It's less than it's what a quarter of an inch. Right. Something. And these railways can they work with each other? Really? Uh huh. The wheel just hits a tiny bit over tick-a, on tick-a, the tick-a, rail. Tick-a, tick-a, tick-a. In Spain and Portugal, the difference between the two Iberian s- systems is a distance of about eight millimeters. So Spain uses 1,672, Portugal uses 1,664, and the new Iberian system- There's a new Iberian system? Is 1,668, so kind of splitting the difference. And all of these trains can share track. You know, if a train car can be flexible, John, to get what? along better, why, why can't we? I know. Why can't I be just eight millimeters different than I am? <laughs> Meet me in the middle here. What's what's crazy is that those the Iberian rail uh, gauge is closest to the rail gauge used in India. <laughs> that that is, probably helps a lot. Which is sixteen hundred and seventy six. Which of course those two rail systems do not interconnect at all. India and Spain. I would not expect them to. But surplus rolling stock from both ah. are usable in Argentina and Chile. You could get on the Darjeeling Limited in Tierra del Fuego. <laughs> right, and end up, uh, well, you'd end up in British Honduras, where you might be one of the 900 people that are killed. You'll be quickly murdered. Um, 
so that's a that's a really interesting kind of kind of global situation where um where there there is a huge market for used trains right it's uh, as a developing country uh expands their capacity they're going to want to buy the cool used trains from Spain if they can just work out their gauges and in present day world the main uh sort of promoter of of international freight rail is china china is because it does all the car manufacturing or they're very invested because china is a planned economy and a very and a sort of top down um a top down economy yeah. right if somebody in the in the chinese politburo decides that they're going to focus on backyard blast furnaces uh that becomes chinese policy and uh and people in chinese government are really fixated on rail kind of to the consternation of the global freight moving set because uh transferring containers by ship is so much more efficient than by rail that um that the tr- the global you know trans shippers are just baffled that anyone would use a train if they could use a ship even like, if the ship has to go the long way around it's still it's still likely to be cheaper so as china increases its so china has has pursued a policy called the um the new silk road or the the one belt one road system the one gauge policy well where they are trying to build a a rail network that goes all the way from you know southern china to northern europe and they're they're integrating part of the trans siberian railway they're trying to connect with all these existing mm-hmm. railways in kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Iran, but they're also trying to go, you know, there, there's a brand new tunnel built under the Bosphorus in wow. Turkey, a brand new rail tunnel that's just recently opened. But the Chinese have to navigate. It might be the first tunnel between continents. I, it just occurs to me. Do you got the first train tunnel between two continents? It could, uh, could be, huh? I mean, uh, yeah, I guess England's not a continent and neither is, neither is Sweden. I, I've always, you know, I would go to my grave insisting that Sweden is not a continent. Sweden. I have the t-shirt. You know what? I've been to the continent of Sweden, <laughs> and I take great umbrage at what you're... Let me think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless there's other Istanbul tunnels that are already there. I don't know. There or, are bridges. Or, or Suez. Yeah, maybe it's all bridges, though. But this but this new tunnel under uh, the Bosphorus is kind of like one of you could say there's always a, a new final link mm-hmm. in this chain one of the major problems though is the number of different gauges that they have to navigate between shanghai and uh you know bremen amsterdam the train's got to literally you know it's got to be a transformer it's got to be like every time it crosses a national boundary and it's really complicated because a lot of those places like uzbekistan um you you've got maybe a government that for a long time isn't interested in making it easy for you to ship goods and services across they they feel like they're the they are uh, you got to go across here so we're going to they're going to hold you up yeah we're going to hold you up we're going to tax you china has invested in um 
in building China's amazing at building infrastructure and they they are right now building rail all over Africa and it isn't clear where the profit is going to come from the um the, the this giant silk road of of rail travel from China to Europe um they're they're sort of projecting that once it's really up and running once they've really got it cooking it's capable of moving a hundred thousand containers a year. How about passengers? Wouldn't you love to go from? So don't even get me started. What I want to do is I want to hook my Orient Express, uh, like super luxe. You've got some wild, wild west train car on, uh, on the on the, cabet, uh, on the back this thing? behind this, you know, this super greasy container shipping Full of uranium. Train. The thing is that a hundred thousand containers is, um. Like basically, the port of Shanghai processes one hundred thousand containers a day, <laughs> coming in and out via ship, and so this this rail network that China is investing billions into building to move a hundred thousand containers a year makes no financial sense if you're talking about moving rail from. Or if you're talking about moving freight from Shanghai to Hamburg. I have well, I've always assumed that these Chinese projects in Africa and possibly this holds for Central Asia as well are more about building a new geopolitical block than they are about turning a quick buck. That's one hundred percent true. And and the um and the all the different gauges, all the work that China is putting into make one world. There's never been really a reason to sink the the rail gauge of Romania to the rail gauge of Uzbekistan. Yeah, I don't care at all about that. And 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 weirdly, I mean, even in Europe, the um, the gauge, the rail gauge of Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania, and the rail gauge of Russia, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, and Moldova. Don't interact at all, and these are nations it's, the border. It's, it's one like the another. four color map problem. Like, <laughs> really how many is. different gauges can you use to color Eastern Europe? But for China to be the one that finally, like, either standardize gauge standardizes gauges or or permanently solves the problem of how to um, how to move a single train across multiple gauges across the world efficiently is more about global political strategizing. It's, it's hegemony. It's like, we're the ones who did it. Like, we're, right. you're all basically Chinese uh, vassal states now. And they may be playing five-dimensional chess, but there's Five-dimensional shogi. But there's a lot of... Five, yeah, five-dimensional go. But there's a lot of, um, of hubbub in the global hoi polloi about what China's end game is in building this international, like the I guess the new gauge war, the new the new new Silk Road, the One Belt One Road. Well, our our listeners know what happened. They know what China's plan was, so they're laughing at us right now. What, our, our, once China activated the uh, the tracks and I don't uh, know, right? All sh- of a sudden, shrunk them all and knocked off all the 
off the, all the foreign rolling stock off their tracks or whatever. Everybody else's train stops dead because China figured out a way to to uh, send I don't know what engine killing pulses through their through their secretly their, their, the secret metallurgy of their new tracks. And it's important to note here one thing I think. I looked it up. The name of the Mad Bomber Muppet is Crazy Harry. And that concludes Change of Gauge, entry 206.LV2733, certificate number 48966, in the Omnibus. Uh, Listeners, uh, we speak to you from a past era where China is still consolidating its rail gauge power uh, before uh, the gauge-related catastrophe that eventually destroys us. Um, we're so backwards here, we still have Facebook. Mm. It's just a place where you can go to to read what Franklin Graham and Ben Shapiro think. It's very important. Mm. Um, mm. It's really it's really good for, for old people to hear weird things about, uh, about race science. Somebody <laughs> yelled at me the other day that I'm still on Instagram, and I was like, go f- yeah, find someone else to yell at. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm living in the now. You're not Mr. Instagram cheerleader. No, I don't care about it. I'm just, I'm just there because I don't even know why. I don't even know why, Ken. Why are you there? <sighs> I'm not there. No, but why are you on the internet? Even? <sighs> I don't know. What do you get out of it anymore? Somebody uh, who was mean to me once got canceled last night. That was fun. Yeah. That's always good. Who, what, that, that uh, that weird actor that or com- comedian in it, it, quotes it'll be months in the past by the time everybody hears it. but uh, yes one of the many pedophile comedians yeah that, that zinged me once oh why did he zing you what was the zing tell me the zing. It's, it's it's was it a good one did he get you no it's it's too detailed to go into oh, here it was dumb he and, didn't get you but also it was like three years after the fact do like, you oh what he found an old tweet he found an old tweet where i mentioned him and like <laughs> got me got me good and i was like well i guess i'll reply in 2022 i've never heard of this guy uh that but but that that's increasingly a problem for me like every day i turn <laughs> right. on the internet and i'm like who what <laughs> why would i care why do i care about this thing filter by youtuber do you but this is the thing about you ken do you ever feel like anybody really gets you like zings you good I thought you meant does anybody really get you, like understand you? No, and I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but does anybody, do you ever feel like you're, because you're pretty quick on the retort. Yeah, but, I, but it hurts my feelings. Even if my comeback is better, that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't solve the sting of somebody being mean, a stranger being mean to me. And they're not even that mean. They're just like, mm, you're Mr. dumb. Smart guy. You're dumb. Yeah, but does, Hey, what is, shut up, Ken. But does anybody ever really get you, though? Like, pa- like not just hurt your feelings, but actually where you're like, like where oh, I admire fuck. the craft of it? Yeah, where you're like, a st- you're just kind of a smoking pile of <sighs> Maybe ash. I would like that better. I would probably like that better. Please zing me more on Twitter. I'm at Ken Jennings. Yeah. John is at John Rag. Do not zing him. He's no, no, no. If you if you can get a zing, that's this is the problem, right? I think about it, and I'm like, oh, people like put me down all the time, but where is the where's the one that where I'm like, oh, I'm done. I'm flamed. Here's it the thing: hardly if, ever happens. If you're a dummy, don't roast us on Twitter, right? But if you're not, I don't know. Take a shot. Here's the thing about dummies: they don't know they're dummies. <laughs> Dunning Kruger effect. <laughs> if you think you're a dummy, you're probably smart. Try zinging us. Hey, there you go. If you think you're smart, you're probably a dummy. Leave us alone. uh, Twitter is guarded by two talking heads. One always says dumb things and one always says smart things. (laughs) One question can you ask either head? They're both named If you you were also at Omnibus Project on all these godforsaken places, uh, you can find communities of like-minded Omnibus listeners, futurelings, we call them. All of them very smart. All of them sentient rail cars. At... uh, 
Speaking of sentient rail cars, by the way, mm-hmm. when I told my wife we did a, had done a Thomas the Tank Engine show, she said, did you mention, and she mentioned all these Thomas the Tank Engine quotes that we had heard umpteen times when my son was little. And I, it was like a, a Proustian Madeline. I had not, I had not thought about these things. She said, did you mention confusion and delay? And I said, no, that's right. They're always talking about confusion and delay. Confusion and delay. That's like the, the dystopia on the island of Sodor. Right. The worst thing that could possibly happen. I guess we did this whole episode about Gage Wars was about confusion, confusion and delay. Confusion and delay is all that it produces. Well, so we've done a second show about confusion and delay. Mindy will be happy. Um, I don't know why I'm talking about that. But this is for you, Mindy. <laughs> thank you, thank like you for listening. Like all of our shows, this is for you. <laughs> We're like Casey Kasem now. <laughs> we dedicate episode 206.LV2733. Uh, you can uh, find your fellow Futurelings on Facebook. Mm-hmm. On uh, there's a There's probably a Discord. There's a, what else is there? There's a subreddit. There's a sub discord. There's maybe a sub subreddit. There's a sub sub basement to Reddit. Uh, you can um, email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com. You can uh, send us physical items if you wish. Uh, these, these guys came a couple uh, weeks ago and I totally forgot about these, John. Uh, our friend Brian sent us fivers. Huh? Um, his grandfather was in the Navy in the 1930s. And as a result, I guess he has a collection of, of Asian monies with the number five on them. This is a newer one. This is from, this is a Chinese five yuan bill. Hmm. Look at the gauge of their money. What, what if they try to standardize us on this little monopoly sized money? I mean, it's got to be cheaper to produce, and it can get through smaller tunnels. That's the thing about it. The, the slot on the ATM is so much smaller. You save money that way. We also have the Japanese government issuing five centavos. Can you figure this out? Why the Japanese government was printing five centavo bills? Uh, is this old or new? Old. I mean, the well, there was a Japanese guy that was the president of Ecuador. Whoa. Oh, Fujimori in yeah, Peru. Peru. Right. I don't think that he would uh, outsource his uh, his country's <laughs> mint to Tokyo. <laughs> Uh, why were why the in the Japanese... 1930s were the Japanese printing five oh, cent dollar bills? because they were invading the Philippines. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, this is occupying occupation money from the Philippines. That's cool. You should take these. Yeah, that's cool. And this is, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. That was the, oh, this is an old five yuan bill. This was five Wu Jiao. This is the new RMB currency. This is actually 1941, uh, like Sun Yat-sen era Chinese money. Whoa. Although I, so, thank you for sending us five of these things. That's wonderful. This uh, this letter comes from Alex. Wait a minute. There's a ten dollar American yes, in there. Yes, Alex. Uh, this is twice as good. <laughs> he sent us Alexander Hamilton. That's real money. It is real money. And so what? Well, no, wait. What? Well, why are you putting it in your pocket? I'm not. I'm taking it out of my pocket to see if I have a five. Oh. We can split it right here live on the show. Well, is that what is that what you're being asked to do? Let's what is find the out. ten? What is the ten about? Ooh, Ken, I recently elected you as my person to be stranded on a desert island with. Oh, boy. John, you're okay. you're on deck if Ken is otherwise indisposed. Your survival oh, skills kisser. sound impressive. Oh, shoot. He says he included, included a stamp so we could send him a reply, but I don't know if we, we may have lost the stamp. Hmm. This may have to be your reply unless I find the stamp, Alex. What would you like to say to him if you were going to write him a little note? Well, I just want to know, like, if we're on a desert island, like, is this a, is this like a, a chaste relationship or a smooching <laughs> relationship, and if it's a smooching one, then I'm going to have, I'm going to have a, a, a 
further list of questions. Well, John wants to kiss you or either want, or maybe wants more than $5 for kissing you. So what, but why the $10? Um, the letter to, goes on to support our incredible podcast. Oh, we often tell people don't send cash, but I mean, apparently they do. And, and, and then I, I immediately pocket it. Send that cash. Uh, a more efficient way to support the show. I mean, this is like the, this guy basically just put a, put a $10 train car on a track from Shanghai to Bremen to right. Hamburg. But uh, there's container ships now. The container ship of Patreon. You can support support the show with a a monthly donation at patreon.com slash omnibus project. And we uh, really appreciate that support. And we love doing the the little perks and bonus content that our supporters receive, including a monthly uh, addenda show at the end of each month. Uh, Let's see. I did the mail. I did the Patreon. That might be everything. I think I'm good. I'm out. Ken's out. Mic drop. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, when our rail systems were shoddily, if at all, connected, and there were no other transcontinental tunnels, unlike your future world where the L.A. to Tokyo tunnel... Every every uh, combination of continents has a tunnel, so it's 7 factorial, whatever that is. 210 times 3, 620, maybe 1240? 1,240 tunnels. There's an Australia to Europe... There's a South America oh, to Africa. That'd be so awesome. There's an Antarctica to to North America. We we should talk about this on the omnibus, but the the project to build trains that run in vacuum tunnels. Isn't um, this the Elon Musk thing? Well, e- Elon is just piggybacking on I- ideas that have been bandied about for decades. The idea of an LA to New York vacuum tunnel, where the train is a maglev train, runs on. You know, it, it levitates. But it takes almost no power because there's no air resistance. There's no air resistance. And a train can go from, I don't know, I, I'm not going to speculate uh, because the, the, because there's an actual figure. Because you'd be making it up. But a train can go from L.A. to New York uh, extremely fast. A child can push it and it will get there in an hour. Off it goes. Um, but, but you have to keep a straw, a vacuum straw, yeah. a, 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 a crazy straw between New York and L.A., and I have no idea if that's cost effective. The thing is, all the Basques have to do <laughs> is... They don't even need to blow anything up. No, they can just make a little hole They in just it. make a little hole, right. So you would have to build this tunnel either like way up in the air or way underground in order to keep people from being able to disrupt it. And I mean, way up in the air. How hard is it to to dislodge a tunnel by a, by a millimeter? How tall is a Basque? Are we going to get in trouble? From Basques. Oh, because of our anti-Basque comedy? We're just joking. We know you guys are just Idaho goat farmers. You're lovely. Yeah. Your, your, your tapas are delicious, or pinchos, as you call them. Yeah. Uh, we know you're not blowing stuff up no, anymore. No, no, no. And, and you, you were a lot, but, not, <laughs> but now less. You've made eastern Idaho, uh, or I'm sorry, you've made eastern Oregon, western Idaho inhabitable where no one else could. Uh, but also, I'm from the 1980s when you were a much more prominent source of... of you, you were in more headlines. Uh, you were, yeah. You were well. It was back when you were training with the Libyans and the IRA and the Red Brigade and the Bader Meinhof gang, and uh, you know, pick your friends better, Basques. We're talking to newer, cooler Basques who are not Edda adjacent. Um. Anyway, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We, Ken and I, may uh, not survive much longer after this episode is released and the Basques blow up our <laughs> underground ben- bunker. <laughs> Uh, We hope and pray that that catastrophe we fear may never come. Almost certainly 
we're talking to futurelings that are 120% Basque. But if the uh, worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>